Okay, I'm pulling on my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another drive to work. Okay, so today I'm going to be talking about something called a design skeleton. So what a design skeleton is, it's something that is uh, part of the technical side of the job. Um, I, I talk a lot about making magic, and I, I know that there's a... Uh, I tend to focus a lot on the... the um, What's the word? The... The intuitive, inspirational, oh, I had a dream, and oh my god, bam, I have an idea. And I talk a lot about, uh, there, there's, uh, there's a lot of thought in the creativity that there's this, like, moments of pure, pure, of pure clarity where you realize things, and there's some of that, and I play that up, and there's, there's a fun thought of, you know, of creativeness, of, of having this wild sort of, you know, um, right brain side sort of thing. But, in reality, a lot of the creative process is hard work and structure, is spending a lot of time carefully crafting and figuring something out. Um, and today, I'm going to talk about a tool that um, we use to do that. Um, I first started talking about design skeletons in a series I have called Nuts and Bolts that I read in my column, where I, I do one a year talking sort of about how to make your own set. Um, and in this column, I introduced the concept of a design skeleton, so I'm going to talk about that today. So, my metaphor, I, I use some metaphors today. I'm, I, I never met a metaphor I didn't like. So, let's start with the metaphor of building a building. So, let's say you're an architect, and it's your job to figure out, to get the vision for what your building looks like. Well, you make something called blueprints, or architectural plans. And what you're doing is, you're saying, hmm... Here's my first thoughts and what I think the building is going to look like. Now, it is quite possible that when you go to start building, or you know, when the builder starts building, the, the architect might have had ideas that, while were great on paper, might not actually work due to d- different limitations. And so, the blueprints are our guideline, you know, and that it's something that when you want to make a set, you have to figure out the core of what you are doing. So, to understand this, let me explain a a basic tenant, <coughs> Some, something that we use to make sets, something we call a card file. Now, the idea of a card file is, it is a list of, let's say I'm making a large set. Large sets currently have 101 commons, 80 uncommons, um, 53 rares, and 15 mythics, 269 cards. Um, we recently upped from 60 uncommons, 80 uncommons, uh, the reason for this was we were getting um, pinched at Uncommon, that there was too much we needed to do and not enough space, and that by opening up a little bit, uh, Uncommon is really the place we can put builds around me for draft that really sort of helps make draft have more variety over time. And anyway, we felt like we needed the extra space, so we added 20 cards. Anyway, so when you're making a set, you have a file. But the thing about the file is you are going to change the cards in the file. That you're going to make cards, sometimes cards, you know... All sorts of things can change about the card. The card could change uh, its t- rule text, its mana cost, its power, its toughness, its creature type. Lots of things can change. Um, and in fact, the whole card could be tossed out and replaced with a completely different card. So what we do is, our card file has slots. Meaning that you have 269 slots. 101 common, 80 uncommon, 53 rare, and 15 mythic. You have slots. And what we do is we designate each slot. So we have what we call card codes that are used to designate. Now, a card code has three components to it. The first component is rarity. 
So if it's a common card, it gets a C. Uncommon card gets a U. Rare card gets an R. Mythic rare card gets an M. Pretty pretty easy. Um, the second signifier um, originally was about the frame. Um, it, it, it is partly about the frame and partly about the color. Um, when we first started making card codes, they were to inform the people producing the cards what the frames were. Uh, that's drifted a little bit over time. But, but as a general sense, it talks about the frame. Um, so if you are a colored card, uh, D- W for white, blue is U, because uh, B is black and L is land. So U is blue, uh, black is B, red is R, green is G. Um, artifacts are A, lands are L. Uh, multicolor cards are Z. Why Z? Um, I don't know. Uh, we just needed something, a signifier, and we wanted to pick something we felt was just out of the way and wouldn't be confused for anything, and no one was using Z, so we, we picked Z. Um, uh, and the way the card file normally goes is you have uh, white, blue, black, red, green, Wooberg, uh, that's the, the first letters in order, I pronounce, uh, or blue for, for you for blue. Um, and then you have your multicolor cards, and then you have your artifacts, and then you have your lands. That's the order that we put them in the file. Um, so the idea is you have a file. So the, what a design skeleton is, is trying to structure the file so that when you approach it, you have some idea of what you need to do. Okay, so the very first thing you do when you do a design skeleton is literally make a slot for every card in your file. In order to do that, the first thing you have to do is figure out some basics about your set. So for example, I have 101 comments. Oh, let me explain the 101st comment. That always throws people. Um, so the, the way, when we print magic cards, essentially we have a sheet. We print a giant sheet. The, the, that's the size that the printer prints on. And then what we do is we cut them down to card size. So we print a whole bunch of cards and then cut them down. Um, and so in order to sort of have the right combinations that we need, there's a certain set size that fit with the card sizes, the sheet sizes. Um, and so that's how we, we get different set sizes is in order to do the thing we need to do. It's very complicated. Uh, I, I learned long ago, uh, in 18 years, I've avoided every possible meeting where I had to talk about templating or collation. Uh, and I worked very hard to avoid those meetings. Uh, they are very important, and I'm glad there's people that do them, but they get really mind-numbing. Um, but it is, uh, it's, it's funny, by the way, when I was in school long time ago, um, in math class, my teacher said, oh, this is important, learn your math, you will need this later in life. And I was sure I was going to be a writer. I said, I'm going to make my living with words, I'm not going to need numbers, and I took my math classes, but I'm like, I, I was super doubtful I was going to need it. And now, now that I'm a game designer, holy moly, I use a lot of math. Like, collation is all math. Like, as fan, and all, all the stuff we have to do to figure out percentages, and it's a lot of math. Um... Luckily, I don't have to do collation full-time. Somebody else is doing collation. Uh, I'm, I'm aware enough of it so I can do my job, which is figuring out set sizes and things. Anyway, um, so you have 101 commons. 101 uh, commons. The 101st, by the way, is actually kind of not a common. It's kind of not an uncommon. It actually falls in between rarity-wise, that it is half as rare as a common, but twice as common as an uncommon. Um, we, we call it a common just because it has to be called something for... Um, but anyway, the 101st card shows up a little less. But anyway, the 101st card is always an artifact or a land. Um, and then what we do is, at common and uncommon, we always completely balance color. And then at rare and mythic, we get close, but it's not exact. Why do we do that? Um, well, we've had some experience not 
balancing color. In torment and judgment, for example, torment uh, skewed toward black, judgment skewed toward white green. Uh, also in Innistrad, I skewed the set a little, not as much as torment, but a little bit toward black because it's so dark. Uh, development ended up undoing that work. Uh, why? Because it really, really skews draft. Not having a balanced color really does weird things to draft and makes draft less fun. And so, at common and uncommon, we balance them completely, meaning there's an equal number of black cards as blue cards, as green cards, as red cards, as white cards, as such. So, um, normally what happens is you have to figure out a common, are you doing any land cycles? Because you have to do them in cycles. Are you doing any artifacts? And if you do artifacts, uh, other than the 101st one, they have to come in fives. So let's say, for example, you go, okay, I want a cycle of common lands that fits my theme. Uh, I, I think I want common artifacts. So we'll say five artifacts plus the six will make the 101st card an artifact. Okay, so now I have 11 cards represented. That means I have 90 cards not represented. I need to do an even split. That's 18 cu- cards per color. So what I do is I go to my files. And remember, common is C, white is W, O1. That, oh, oh, I did mention, the third signifier is number. So it's, it's uh, color, I'm sorry, rarity, uh, color slash frame number. So the first in the file is CW01 all the way through CW18. That means there's 18 slots for white. Then you have CU01 through CU18. You do that, then you have your five artifact slots, your five land slots, or your six artifact slots, five land slots. Now you have your 101 cards. Um, so that's the very first thing you do. You literally make slots. Then what you do is you figure out whether or not uh, each slot is a creature or a spell. Um, so the way you figure this out is pretty easy. It, um, what we have done is we have figured out how many creatures each color is supposed to have and made a default. So right now, white gets the most creatures. Why white? Why not green? So green used to get the most creatures. Green is thought of as the creature color. And so for a long time, green got both the most creatures and the biggest creatures. But what, sometimes we realized that like we wanted to spread out the, spread out the creature love. And so what we did is we said, okay, White is the color all about the group coming together, the community, the army. The, it wants a lot of little creatures. And so we'll make white the color that is the most creatures, but we'll make green the color that is the biggest creatures. And that way we can differentiate them. White and green already have this problem of um, overlapping a lot. And so give a little more spread between them we thought was good. Um, now, the numbers I'm giving you are default numbers. They change from set to set. This is kind of where we start. So white, by default, has 55% creatures. So if you look at the file, that's 18, half, you know, 50% is 9. That means eh, 10, 11 cards want to be creatures. Oh, and this is important. When we talk about creatures, um, development has a very distinctive thing of how they count creatures. They care about creatures from an aggressive standpoint. So any uh, thing that makes creatures, for example, if you have a instant in white that makes two 1-1 tokens, that is counted as a creature. It might be an instant... You know, or sometimes it's a sorcery, but the fact that it makes creatures, it functionally is a creature um, from a vantage point of counting it as a creature. Meanwhile, defenders, cards that have no ability to attack, don't count against creatures. And so there's a little bit of, uh, we say 55% creatures. We're talking about things that relatively matter aggressively as creatures. Um, uh, now, we do count things that have a tap-activated ability, um, or even things that have a zero power if they're capable of attacking because the game has ways to buff those things up. Um, so anyway, white's default is 55%. And I, I stress the word default, that as each set rolls along, we match it with what we need to do. And so a set might have a little more, might have a little less, um, although the cards will always go in the following order. So white is number one of creatures, as far as number of creatures. Green is number two, has about 52%. 
Black is number three at about 50%. Red is number four at about 48%. And blue is number five at about 45%. So it goes in order, white, green, black, red, blue. Blue is the most spell-oriented. Red is second most spell-oriented. Black's in the middle. And then white and green lean toward the creature side. Um, and like I said, even though we'll, we'll change them up, usually they stay in that order. Even when like sets are a little heavier on creatures or a little lighter on creatures, they still tend to stay in that order. Um, okay, so once you do that, the next step is figuring out what size creatures you have. And so what we do at first is we break creatures into three general sizes. Uh, a small creature is any creature whose power and toughness adds up to four or less. An uncommon creature is any creature whose power adds up from five to eight. And a large creature is any creature that adds up, whose power and toughness add up to nine or more. And so, um, so now you go through the file and you figure out for each of your creatures... Um, whether they're small, medium, or large. Once again, we allocate at certain rarities. Like, for example, white tends to have mostly small, a little bit of medium. Traditionally, it doesn't get a large at common. Every once in a blue moon it does, but as a default, it does not. Um, where, on the flip side, green always has a large creature at common. Every once in a while, we have two large creatures at common. Um, you know, that different, different creatures we, we allocate. So, actually, let me a little a little aside here. Um... I spend a lot of time and energy talking this podcast about how I try to make each set different. I talk about pushing the pendulum. I talk about how, you know, we keep wanting to make each set be this new thing to explore. But the thing I don't talk much about, which I will today, and it's very, very much about what the design skeleton is about, is how we try to make every set the same. Because one of the things that's important to understand is um, I talk a lot about how magic is many games and to many people there's many ways to play it. But... The flip side of that is, at its core, Magic is one game that has one running set of how it works. And that when you sit down to play a game of Magic, we want to make sure that it is a game of Magic. It is possible to push it too far. You know, you could come and say, okay, this set, you know, we're not going to have creatures, and we're going to, you know, um, all damage is going to be permanent, and we could constantly change things and just change the fundamentals of how it's going to work. Um... But the, um, the thing, though, is our job is to make things comfortable. So um, one of the things, like in Hollywood, um, if you're trying to pitch a new product in Hollywood, one of the things that's important is you always want to pitch your product as a combination of two known quantities that will come together to form an unknown quantity. So the idea essentially is, um, like, let's say you have this awesome idea for a, um, a movie about a guy who gets taken by aliens and has to fight his way out, okay? So you want to go pitch this to Hollywood. But the problem is um, that if you just... If in a vacuum, I might go, oh, that's too weird. You know, I don't know, I don't know if we're comfortable with that. But no, what you say is, okay, I have an awesome film. It is Die Hard meets Independence Day. You know, what you've done is said, oh, well, it, the, the trappings of the story, it's about a guy who's surrounded by bad guys who has to fight his way out. Oh, that's Die Hard. Die Hard. It's similar to Die Hard. You know, and they say, oh, well, aliens, well, like, yo, Independence Day, that was super, super popular, and that's all about aliens. And, and so what you do is you try to take the, your, your unknown quality and put it through known prims, uh, prisms. And so it's sort of like, oh, well, Die Hard was popular. People like that kind of movie. Oh, Independence Day was popular. People like that kind of movie. And you go, oh, I see. Hmm. But you were mixing them. No one's ever mixed Die Hard with 
aliens before, that might be interesting. Um, and in some ways, when I pitch a magic set, I mean, essentially, um, what we do is, is I, I, it's gothic horror meets magic. It's Greek mythology meets magic. It's the guilds meet magic. It's adventure world meets magic. That what we do every year is we try to take some known quantity and, and another known quantity, which is magic, and the fun of it is the interaction. It's like, oh, I know magic. Oh, I know Greek mythology. Oh, how is magic going to do Greek mythology? How are those things going to blend together? You know, and that one of the things that is very important is that we are always trying to, um, I mean, I talked about this, obviously, in my communication theory, is that comfort is important. The people have to come and know what they're getting into. And so a lot of what we need to do every year is make sure there's consistency. So, for example, I just talked about the creatures. Now I get to the spells. So the first thing you'll do in the spells is sometimes you'll break up whether you want enchantments or instants or sorcerers. Usually instant sorcerers are the same thing for, for the design skeleton at first. Uh, eventually you might break them up, but in the beginning it's just kind of, oh, this is an instant or sorcery, this might be an enchantment. Normally a common enchantments are auras. Um, the other thing that you will do is you will signify uh, established spells that you need. For example, green at common is going to do a giant growth effect. It's going to do some sort of land fetching. Um, odds are it probably will do some kind of life gain. It'll do some kind of naturalized effect. You know, blue's going to do a hard counterspell and a soft counterspell. Hard counterspell means it can counter anything, like counterspell or um, a spell that just says counter target spell. Uh, a soft counterspell is a spell that which only affects a, a narrow band, like counter target enchantment or, or counter target creature. Or it's conditional, meaning, you know, counter target spell unless your opponent pays two. Well, it's not always going to counter the spell. Um, but anyway, blue will always have a hard counter and a soft counter. It'll have, uh, you know, a bounce spell. It'll have card drawing. It'll have card filtering. You know, black will have creature kill. Usually there's a, a straight-up terror effect, and then there's an effect that's a little smaller, you know. Um, and, and the idea is there's certain things that we always do that we make sure to put those in early on, that you signify, oh, this is, this is a giant growth. Now, what you do early on is that you tend to default, like, for example, the giant growth usually is allocated to an, to an instant early on. Why? Because most of our giant growths are instants. Um, but it's possible, let's say you're doing a set in which there's a strong aura theme. Oh, well, maybe instead of a giant growth, I make a, a plus two, plus two, or plus two, plus two aura with flash on it. That functions a lot like giant growth. I can surprise you, and it's bigger. Oh, but in aura world, it's permanently bigger, rather than just being a temporary effect. Um, so one of the things you do is you sort of start establishing what you want, and remember, the design skeleton is a living, breathing thing uh, in that it's, it's, it's constantly evolving. You, you notice there's a theme in magic that everything's constantly evolving. That, that's kind of the, the nature of the game. And so what you're doing is... Um, so I'll use a different metaphor today. I use my blueprint metaphor. Now I'll use my uh, storyboard metaphor. So in Hollywood, let's say you're going to direct a film. You're going to make a film. So what you do before you ever get to touching a camera is you get an artist, or multiple artists, and you do what's called a storyboard. What a storyboard is, is you figure out all the shots you want to do, and you draw them. You have, you have an artist actually physically draw them. By the way, guys, I am sitting in traffic. Uh, as I look at my clock here. So you guys have an extra long uh, podcast today. Which is good, because there's a lot that goes into design skeleton. So luckily I picked a topic that can, uh, that can handle some traffic. See, every once in a while, I pick a topic, and then I'm like, don't be traffic, don't be traffic. I have like maybe 30 minutes on this. If there's traffic, I'm doomed. Doomed! But luckily today, not doomed. Like I said, I've, I've written a whole bunch on this, so 
This is uh, lots, lots, lots about design skeleton. Okay. So anyway, um, the idea is as you create stuff, it will evolve with what you're doing. That um, um, oh, storyboards. I'm sorry. Uh, so if you're a director and you're making a film, you start doing what's doing storyboards, which is you get an artist to draw what you expect to see with the camera. And the reason you do storyboards is so you can map out what's going to happen. Because when you get to actually filming the film, you want to allow the uh, opportunities to... Uh, you want to be able to do things when you see opportunity. For example, let's say I get to the film and there's a gorgeous sunset. A gore- I'm like, oh my... Like, i got to capture the sunset. So you might shift what you're doing. You might change it around a little bit to try to capture that. You know? And the, remember, the cool thing about doing design is you're not locked into anything. Um, I mean, as you progress, you start committing to things. I mean, I guess with time you get locked into things. But early on in design, you have a lot of freedom. And that just because you set out to do something doesn't mean that when you play test, if you find it's not working or you find something even better, that you can't capture that. Um, I mean, I've talked about this all the time, that design, or most creative works, is iteration, which means you're going to keep doing... Essentially, the way you do a magic set is make a card file, play it, learn from that, make corrections, play again, continue, lather, rinse, repeat. That you're basically constantly changing the files and playing with it and seeing what you've learned from it, then making changes based on what you've learned from your playtest, then playtesting again. Um, and with the, car, with the, the thing that the, the skeleton does for you is it gives you the structure you need so you can understand what it is you are doing. Because one of the things about building a set is, and this is one of the hardest things, is there's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot going on. That it's not like when you build a set, there's just one thing to focus on. There's 20 things to focus on. Maybe there's 100 things to focus on. There's tons of things. A lot of moving pieces are happening. And what you, you need to do in order to see all those moving pieces is you need to track them so that you can understand what's happening. And the thing that's really, really nice about the design skeleton is um, sometimes you, it allows you to see where your problems are. So, so let me give you a real, like a concrete example. Um, I think this was from Odyssey. Okay, so I have my design skeleton and I realized that I've not yet done a giant growth effect, but I ran out of non-creature spells. Um, and so what I realized is I said, okay, I know I need to do a rampant growth, um, and I don't have a spell left. So I said, okay, well, what if I made a creature, a cheap creature, that you could sacrifice to, to go get a basic land? Um, and I'm like, okay... Well, that allows me, you know, you can use it as a creature for as long as you need it, but as soon as you need the land, you can go get the land. Um, and that was, like, the reason I sort of was able to solve that problem was I, I instantly saw my, you know, I, I had allocated things with my, with my, um, my design skeleton, so I understood what, what, what things were doing. Like, one of the things is it's very easy when you look at a card in a vacuum to not remember what that card's purpose in the whole set is. And the design skeleton helps identify things. Like, oh, yeah, yes, that's part of this. That's part of this cycle. Oh, that's another thing. Let me talk about cycles real quick. So um, cycles are one of the most useful tools for a designer. Uh, in fact, one of these days I, I should probably do a whole podcast on cycles. In fact, I will. I've dubbed I will do that. Um, but anyway, uh, suffice to say cycles are very important when you're doing your... your um, when you are doing your design skeleton, that you want to make room and place for the cycles. 
It also, when you signify the cycles, it's very easy to lose track of cycles. Like what happens, it's very common, is you'll make a bunch of cards, they'll be a cycle, they'll do something, and later on you're trying to fix some problem, and without thinking about it, you change a card, because I like get a vacuum, it just seems like a whatever, whatever card. And then later, like, oh, oh, that was part of a cycle. And so it's important that you label things and you have some understanding of where things are so that when you're putting your things together, you can see the moving pieces. Like I said, one of the biggest problems in design is trying to track all the moving pieces. In fact, one of the things I've gotten very, very good at, and like I said, you know, I, I put in, uh, I'm, I'm working on my, I think, 20th lead design right now. Um, one of the things that you just get good at with time, with experience, is that I now have an intuitive sense whether a set's missing something, that I can look at a set and sort of say, oh, here's what's missing. Um, <coughs> and it's funny because my designers would love to get this ability, so they're always like, how do you see that? How do you? And I'm like, it's just experience. You just do it enough that you get a general sense of things. Okay. So you have the skeleton. And, and basically, by the way, the way we, we build sets is what we'll do is we'll start by making comments. So why comments? Um, the reason you start at comments is, uh, well, first and foremost, um, when you open a booster pack of magic, on average, you will have one land, ten commons, three, uh, in, three uncommons, one rare, which one-eighth of the time will be a mythic rare. Um, that means that two-thirds of your experience of every booster pack is commons. That's huge. 66.6% of all experiences of booster packs, and, and that's me counting the lands, actually a smidgen higher if you discount the land. So anyway, it's a huge part of your experience, and if common doesn't hold your set, if your set doesn't live and breathe a common, your audience won't know what it is. I, I have a dictum I, I say to my designers, which is, if your theme isn't a common, it's not your theme. And what that means is, let's say I do an awesome thing. So like, the, the, the classic example of this mistake was in Champions of Kamigawa, where we made, we wanted to have a legendary theme, and so we made all our rare legends, um, all our rare creatures legendary. And we made, we made a few uncommon legendary creatures, which is something we never ever do. The problem was, how many packs did I have to open to understand that? For starters, I only get one rare per pack. If it wasn't a creature, I'd even see a legendary thing in my pack. I mean, maybe I got an uncommon, but you know, I could open a pack and just see nothing. Maybe on my second pack, I do get a creature of rare, and it is legendary, but there's legendary creatures. Oh, I got a legendary creature. You know, it's not until I open five or six or something, like, I have to start getting a preponderance of something to go, oh, this is not normal. And the problem is, not everybody's going to buy six, seven packs of your product, or at least not necessarily day one, you know. I don't want someone buying my product and opening up multiple boosters and not knowing what the product's about. That is bad. In fact, I want them opening one booster and knowing what the product's about. I want the, I want the theme to hit you so quickly that it only takes one booster to have a sense of what the, what the set is about. Now, obviously, there's a wrapper. I mean, there's things to help sell it even beyond the cards. But I, I want, let, let's assume you're ignoring the booster wrap. I want you to have a sense from the 15 cards you open what the set is about. That means your set has to live and breathe the comments. So, the very first thing we do is try to figure out how to make commons work. So, normally what we'll do is we'll do the design skeleton for the commons, we'll build the commons, we play test the commons. Um, and then, with time, we, low, we slowly layer in the uncommons, the rares, the mythics. So, those, those come with time. Um, 
And the design skeleton, um, for example, you only need a map or common before you make a common. You don't necessarily need um, to have the whole thing done before you start a common. Uh, in my article on Nuts and Bolts, I, it's just easier to have you do the whole thing to explain it. Um, but in actual practicality, um, there's a lot of things that happen concurrently in magic uh, design. I mean, it's, it is, there's, it's not like A, then B, then C. It's kind of like A and B and C are kind of happening at the same time. So while you're doing A, keep an I and B and an I and C, and D might start soon. And there's a, I mean, one of the things about doing design, and this is why having the blueprint, having the design skeleton is so important, is design is chaotic. Chaotic. Because you have all these different things you're trying to understand and figure out, and, and they're happening in conjunction with each other. Oh, so let, let me give you another important tip. When playtesting, you want to make sure that you're introducing one new thing at a time. Um, now, uh, I'll admit, we break that rule all the time, but I think that's just, we have enough experience that we can watch multiple things and understand what's going on. Sorry, I'm yawning today. I even got sleep last night. Um, and so one of the things that, that, that is very important is um, because things are going on concurrently, you need to ground yourself to understand what is happening. Um, and when you're playtesting, it really helps to have one thing to focus on so that you can understand what that one thing is doing. If you have too many new things added in, then you just can't tell when you playtest. You know? um, like I said, with experience... I can, I can throw a bunch of things in, and I have enough experience that I can sort of uh, separate what's going on. But once again, that takes a lot of time. If you're doing this for the first time, add one thing in at a time. You know, and that... Um, it's also, when you're playtesting, by the way, there's nothing wrong with trying a bunch of versions of something. Uh, when we were doing the land set with Zendikar, um, and we were trying out land mechanics, we would throw a whole bunch of land mechanics in the set at once. Because we just wanted to experience different things. And it's not so important that, you, you, even, even if you know you're not going to use them all, you're just trying to experience things. That's another important thing of early, of early playtesting, which is the role of early playtesting is experiencing things. It is not having a tight, wound environment yet. Don't worry necessarily about everything interconnects. Worry about is each individual card taken in isolation something that's fun and enjoyable to play. Um, let's see how we do time-wise. Oh, I should be at work, but I'm not because of traffic. Although I, I, it's, it's moving along now, so um, it shouldn't, I shouldn't be super late today. Um, it is funny, though. My podcast has made me rethink traffic. I now see traffic, and I'm like, eh, I'll talk a little longer. Um, it, it, it lowers my, my blood pressure while driving. You, see, you guys are good for my health. Um, I'm trying to think of any other key thing on, on the design skeleton. The, um, the one thing that I, I, I will stress to people is... Detail is fine in making a design skeleton, um, but be aware there's a difference between what you need and what you want. Um, it is very easy when making a design skeleton to put in things you would like to have rather than things you need. The design skeleton is not about want. The design skeleton is about need. What do you have to have to structurally make the thing work? Now, it's fine when you're making your set to do things you want to do, but the design skeleton is trying to... The point of the design skeleton is what is necessary, not... You, I mean, I, I, I'm saying this a little incorrect. You can have things in your design skeleton that are things you want, 
But you have to be careful that you understand what are the things you need from the things you want. And so in Design Skeleton, I like to prioritize things you want. I'm sorry, things you need. So I often tell my designers when they start making their design skeletons, early on, talk more about what you need. If you really want to put some conditional stuff in there, put it in italics or something. Do something that when you look at it, you know it's secondary to what you're trying to do. Because um, a lot of what the design skeleton is trying to help you with is figuring out how to prioritize things and what you need to, how, how things need to come together. I mean, the trick is, because game design or magic design is about so many competing forces all happening at once, that a lot of what you need to understand is prioritizing. That's a big part of making a set. It's figuring out what do you need, what does the set need, you know. And one of the reasons I, I talk about tossing out things that are good but don't fit your set is they're just taking up mind space that is needed elsewhere. Um, that if I have a card that's this awesome card that does neat, wonderful things, but it's fighting the rest of my set, it's just going to cause me problems. And I need to take it out and free up space so that I can do more things that are helping my set do what my set wants to do. There's always other sets. There's always If you make an awesome card, it will find a home. Um, if it's something that deserves to be printed, it'll eventually get printed. Um, but that doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean it goes in the first available place it can be put. That, that, that's how bad design happens because you force things in because of your attachment to the thing and not because of the role the thing plays in a larger design that you are doing. Um, the other thing about, about uh, design skeletons is they're not written in ink. They're written in pencil. And by, by that, I mean you can change them. If you try something and it doesn't work, change it. If you're having some problem, it can change. Um, one of the things I've, I've noticed once I tell people to start using design skeletons is they write it and then they assume it's a locked thing and then they get all in trouble and they don't know how to solve the problem. And I'm like, no, 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 no. If you run into a problem, a design skeleton is a guideline, um, much like, you know, if the architect's building a building and there's some, you know, there's a boulder on the side of the hill that they can't dig out, like, oh, well, maybe we're changing around the house a little bit to accommodate this thing that we can't change. Um, and design is the same way. Car design is the same way, which is, you know, sometimes you discover, oh, I can't do something. Uh, it breaks a rule or it causes some interaction that's problematic, and I can't do that. Well, go back to your design skeleton and say, okay, what, what, are, what are my non-negotiables? What are the things that I need to have, and how can I work around knowing that I can't have this thing I assumed I was going to have? The, the, the other thing to remember about a design skeleton is that the design skeleton is a tool, which means as much as you make use of the tool is how useful the tool will be. Um, different people you make design skeletons of different amounts. So I've had designers who uh, are super, super, super detailed, that they write every possible thing they can think of. That almost when you look at their, their skeleton, it's almost like they've made the card file. It's so, you know, this has to be an instant and it costs three mana and it's green and it has to be a naturalized effect and, um, and it has to make use of the new keyword. I'm like, well, you've kind of designed your card right there. Um, other people, myself, as, as for example, um, like I don't even actually even use a design skeleton anymore because I've internalized most of it. I mean, I like to think I do use a design skeleton, but it's in my head. But it's very, very loose, and it's super flexible. Um, a lot of what I do is sort of I've learned to look at a set and get a, get a sense of what it needs and doesn't need. Um, that I, I've sort of internalized this process. Um, it takes a long time, so I, I would stress use the design skeleton. Um, I, I've been doing this for 18 years, so 
I, I, I'm able to take a few shortcuts that I think most designers uh, would be, I would not advise them taking. Uh, so, I know I'm almost to work. Um, the, the real point of today is, is this. Um, there's a lot of art to what I do. There's a lot of art to card design. But there's also a lot of craft. And that it's fun to talk about the exciting, intuitive, you know, things pop in your head moment. But it's also important to understand that there's a lot of work. There's a lot of elbow grease. That it's not a lot of just sitting around and thinking and go, oh, what's the, that's an idea. A lot, a lot of time it's plotting and planning and mapping things out and structuring things. And that there's a lot of technical craft that goes into making card sets. Um, and the design skeleton is just a sign that, like, you need to pay attention to that. If you do not pay attention to that, it will come to, to bite you. Because there's too many things going on and too many things you have to care about that without a real strong sense of, of a tool to guide you, you will get lost and you will forget things. And um, the other thing that, that happens a lot is because there's so many things you're trying to fit in and while 269 cards might seem like a lot, when you're actually trying to do a bunch of complex things, it gets tiny quick. Um, and we talk, we talk about getting pinched where at some part in the file you have too many things you need and not enough card slots to do them. Um, and and, and that's, that's a real problem that you run into every single design that you get pinched somewhere and then it's a matter of figuring out can I shift those abilities can I change them in rarity can I change them in color is there a way to overlap two things that don't normally overlap like my example before with um, the creature and uh, the rampant growth is there a way to you know have two things that need to coexist but overlap them in slots you know that's very important um, so anyway uh, design is uh I, like I said, today was a little more of a of a by the by the book sort of podcast where I'm talking about um, the nitty gritty of what we do. But the nitty gritty is important, and that um, and by the way, the nitty gritty is fun. Uh, I very much enjoy uh, structuring things, and, and I, I'm a puzzle. I love puzzles, and I think a lot of design is, is trying to crack puzzles. Um, and a lot of the puzzle solving is all the groundwork you do with the. Um, uh, with your skeleton to figure out, like a lot of solving puzzles, it's figuring out all the parameters. And so, um, I think the design skeleton is doing a lot of the homework. That there's a way to think of it. That if you want to do design, you got to do your homework. The design skeleton is your homework. Luckily, it's very fun homework. So anyway, I love talking about magic and technical design, but I even more, I love making magic. So it's time for me to go. I'll talk to you guys next time.